You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us now together open the Word of God, turning this afternoon to the Gospel according to Luke. Let's turn to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight. And says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread, because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This afternoon, the text for the sermon is God's word as we've read it together in Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. But the focus will be on verses 5 through 13. We will not read it again. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes to the whole matter of prayer, the prayer of Christians, we all know that this is something that we ought to do. We realize that we should pray daily, that indeed we ought to pray constantly and perseveringly. We understand very well that this is what God requires of us, and that this is also what God invites us to do, to call upon him daily. And mostly I think this is also what we indeed practice. Most of us, I would venture to say this afternoon, are Christians who pray at least on several different occasions each and every day. Sometimes the prayers are short, sometimes they are long, sometimes they are spontaneous, sometimes they are at a specific moment, the same moment each and every day. We pray before meals, usually we pray after meals as well. We pray when we rise up in the morning, we probably pray in most cases when we lie down in the evening. We pray before class at the beginning of the day at school. We pray in catechism, we pray at consistory meetings, we pray at men's society. And then there are the prayers that just arise in the the course of the day when we're doing our sewing or our baking or as we're driving down the highway or performing some other task. Our thoughts go to God and we bring before him our thanksgiving and petitions. I think there's really no doubt that Christian people, such as ourselves, are by and large people who are diligent in prayer. 
But the question is still worth asking, what do we actually expect from God when we call upon him? What do we really expect from our prayers? When we call upon the Lord, when we lay before him our requests, our petitions, the needs of our lives and the needs of others, do we really have the confidence that God is hearing us? That he's going to respond to us? And that our lives as a consequence will be changed? Do we really believe that as we pray? Or could it be that sometimes we pray because, well, that's just what you do. That's our habit. We have a prayer habit. There's nothing wrong with a prayer habit. But sometimes we pray, well, just because we have a habit. We pray because we're supposed to pray. We pray because that's our tradition. We pray because we feel this is what God expects of us. Or we pray simply because that's what we learned when we were little. And we don't even know how to do it differently. Or we pray, perhaps, sometimes because... Well, it can't hurt, right? And it might help, after all. Well, today in Luke chapter 11, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us powerful instruction about the kind of attitude we ought to have when we call upon him in prayer. And what we learn from our Savior and his teaching in Luke 11 is that when we pray, when we go to God as our Father, then we should indeed expect Sincerely expect things to happen. And so our theme, therefore, this afternoon is Christ teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven with confidence. And we'll see that he teaches us this in three ways. First of all, with a convincing story. And secondly, with an encouraging guarantee. And in the third place, with a comforting comparison. God teaches us to pray with confidence, first of all, then, with a convincing story. It's in verses 5 through 8 of this chapter that our Lord Jesus Christ tells one of his trademark stories, a kind of a parable, a parable that's set in probably one of the small villages of Judea or Galilee. He tells us about a person in one of these villages who has a problem. The problem is that he has unexpectedly received company. Now, maybe you like getting unexpected company. Some people don't like that. But in the time of the Lord Jesus, it was probably more common to receive company unexpectedly because if you had friends or family living in some village at a distance from you, you couldn't phone ahead. You couldn't pick up the telephone and say, hey, is it all right if I come by next week on Wednesday night? And you couldn't send a letter either because there was no mail service of any kind of regularity. If you wanted to visit someone at a distance from you, a friend or a relative, well, the only thing to do was to just go and arrive. And obviously that would be unexpected. So that's one problem for this man living in a Judean village. He has unexpected company. But there's another difficulty. This company has arrived at a rather awkward time. No other, no other time than midnight. What a time to arrive, unexpectedly. Most inconvenient time. And that probably also was not as uncommon then as it would be in our time because people in Judea and Galilee and in the Middle East, generally, in those days, preferred to travel after the mid-afternoon hours when the temperature was going down and you wouldn't work up quite as much of a sweat as you traveled. Well, because the guest is unexpected and because he's arrived at an awkward time, the host has a real problem. Duties of hospitality are directing him. 
duties of hospitality teach him that he ought to provide for the needs of his guest. He ought to wash his feet. He ought to ensure that he has refreshing drinks of water or other beverages. And he ought to provide him at least with, with a bit of bread to nourish his body. But because of the time of the day, there's no food left. All the bread baked earlier in the day is, has been consumed at breakfast and lunch and dinner. There's no store, there's no 7-Eleven, there's no 24-hour grocery store nearby. And so the man does the only thing he can think of. He heads off to a neighbor, a neighbor who's also a friend, and he rouses him from his bed and asks him for some help to deal with the problem he has of his unexpected company. Now you might ask the question, was this the right thing to do? Was it the right thing for him to bother his neighbor at this wee hour of the morning? can imagine, after all, that it would have caused quite a ruckus. The neighbor's children likely would have woken up because the houses were small and everyone slept in close quarters. The dog might have barked and all the livestock that was typically kept in the front of the house would have been disturbed. And it was no small thing to light a lamp in that time. And neither was it a small thing to unlock the doors of Palestinian houses. The keys were complicated affairs and the locks were complicated. And so it was quite a process for this man to wake up and to answer the knock on his door in the middle of the night. Was it the right thing to do? Well, the story of the Lord Jesus actually makes clear that it wasn't the right thing to do. It was not the right thing to bother your neighbor in the middle of the night for something as small as a piece of bread. Verse 8 describes this this action of the man approaching his neighbor as a matter of boldness. It says at the end of verse 8, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up. But you know, that's one of those words in the Bible that probably isn't translated particularly well, because in every other occurrence of that word in the Greek language, in all of Greek literature, it never means boldness, but it always means something more like shamelessness. So you can read classical authors and find the same word, and it's translated as shamelessness. And I think there's a strong case to be made for that word being translated in the same way here. And so the story makes clear in the very words that Jesus uses that going to your neighbor at midnight for something as small as a piece of bread, that's, that's not a civil thing to do. That shows a lack of respect for your neighbor and a lack of respect for the norms of society. You don't bother your neighbor for such a small thing. You only bother your neighbor for some great thing, for some crisis, for an emergency of some kind or the other. But nonetheless, Jesus tells the story, and then he asks us to imagine what the response of the man whose sleep was disturbed would be. What would he say? Would he refuse the request of his neighbor? Would he send them away with harsh words? You might even ask yourselves, what would you do? If your sleep was disturbed tonight at one o'clock in the morning by some neighbor who has a very small request of you, he needs a gallon of gas for his car or, or whatever, what would you do in, the, in that situation? Would, would you tell your neighbor to go away? Would you respond in anger and say to him, don't you know what time it is anyway? Come again in the morning. Don't bother people in the middle of the night. You know, I think you wouldn't do that. Most of us would not do that. We, we might feel mildly irritated. But we'd hear the voice of our neighbor, and we'd get up, and we'd find what they need, and we'd help them out, even though it was a bother, and even though it was more or less against the rules of civil society to wake somebody up in the middle of the night for a small matter. 
And so Jesus assumes also that the man in the story would not refuse the request of his shameless neighbor, but would fulfill the request. So what's the point? What's the point of this story told by Jesus? Is the point of the parable that God finds our requests to be a bit of a bother? That he doesn't really want to hear about them anymore? But that if we keep bothering him anyway, if we keep badgering him and shamelessly going to him, that we'll eventually get what we ask? Well, that's not possible, of course. That's not a possible reading of the parable because God never finds his people to bother. This is not a story about bothering God, persisting in prayer, bothering God, as some have thought. Instead, the point of the story is this. The point is that if this sleeping man is willing to help a bothersome neighbor who comes to him shamelessly in the middle of the night, breaking all the rules of civil society, how much more? How much more, in contrast, does God stand ready to help his children who come to him in prayer? So the point is not that God would be like that householder whose sleep was disturbed, but that God would be, in contrast, far more ready to do what is necessary to do for his children. So think of it like this. If even fallen human beings like ourselves and like our unbelieving neighbors, if even fallen human beings like ourselves respond, albeit grudgingly, to the rude requests of a neighbor, how much more will God, who is good, and who is the overflowing fountain of all good, how much more will he hear and how much more will he respond to the requests of his children when they come to him in sincerity of heart and faith? Don't you find that a convincing story? I know that I do. And the story becomes even more convincing when you realize that God, unlike the person in the story, never finds our requests rude. He never finds them shameless. He never considers them to be inconvenient. They're never a nuisance to him. How could they be? He's our father. We are his children, whom he's adopted in his grace. He's made us his very own. And he's the one who's taught us in his word to call upon him in every situation and in every circumstance of life. And so the thing we should take home from this parable in verses 5 through 8 of Luke 11 is that we never have to persuade God to hear. As soon as we open our mouths, God is at the ready. He's at the ready to hear, to answer, to respond, and to do the very thing which we have asked. So having seen that Jesus Christ teaches us to pray to God with confidence by means of a convincing story, let's go on now in verses 9 and 10 to see how he also does so with an encouraging guarantee. And it really is a guarantee, isn't it, that we find in verses 9 and 10. Ask, and it will be given to you. It's a guarantee. Seek, and you will, look, and you will find. There's no ambiguity there. Jesus makes this the norm. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. And then he, he underscores it by re- repetition in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. That is definitely a very encouraging guarantee, and one that our Savior intends us to take with utmost seriousness. And some people see distinct meanings in these words, ask and seek and knock. I think that's probably quite far-fetched. I think these are synonyms. They all have to do simply with the act of going to God in prayer. 
The emphasis in this section is not on the distinction of the words, but the emphasis is on the certainty of the response. It will be given, it, you will find, and the door will be open to you. Beautiful words. Encouraging words, convincing words. But at the same time, they may leave in your mind a certain degree of confusion, a kind of spiritual dissonance, if you will. What do these words of Jesus mean? We read them, and, and perhaps our first instinct is to say, but, ask and it will be given to you, but, and then we want to add all kinds of qualifications. Seek and you will find, but, and again, a whole series of qualifications. Is that really what Jesus wants us to do with this passage? Does he want us to water it down and diminish its impact so that it's no longer in any way, shape, or form an, an encouraging guarantee but simply kind of a, a generalized promise which sometimes comes true and sometimes doesn't come true? Well, probably not. Jesus does not want us to diminish the power of his words. But on the other hand, is the Lord Jesus Christ then giving us a blank check, leaving us to write into that check any amount we will? Can we really ask for the world with the certainty that Jesus Christ will give it? Can we pray for health and wealth? And, and be sure that God will supply it? Can we indeed pray for whatever our heart desires and then just watch as God opens the gates of heaven and pours out upon us the very things we have laid before his throne? Well, those are legitimate questions and the spiritual dissonance that you might have in reading a passage like this is understandable. And that's why it's important to always read it in context. We get some real perspective on our passage if we remember that just before our text. The Lord Jesus Christ has given the church a model prayer. His disciples said to him, teach us to pray. And then followed from the mouth of our Savior the words with which we are so familiar. The words we call the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation. That's a standard for prayer. That's a model for the prayer of the people of God. All of your prayers in one way or the other should be normed, structured by this prayer. Because this is a prayer which Jesus has given to guide us in our prayer life. And so when just a few verses later, after receiving this standard, this model prayer from the mouth of our Savior, just a few verses later, a few breaths later, in his conversation with his disciples, when he then says, ask, and seek and knock, then clearly those words are intended to be read in relation to this standard, this model prayer which he has just taught. And so when you want to think about the kind of asking which always receives to, which always leads to receiving, when you want to think about the kind of seeking that always leads to finding, and the kind of knocking that always leads to the door being opened unto you, then you have to keep in mind the context. You have to keep in mind the Lord's Prayer. And when you look at that Lord's Prayer, the thing that's the most striking about it, of course, is that it's not really about our wants. It's not really about our desires. Instead, the requests of the Lord's Prayer revolve around God, His name, His kingdom, His will. Even when in the Lord's Prayer we ask for our daily bread, that's not really about us. Because why, after all, do we ask for our daily bread just so that we might have a full stomach and no longer be hungry? 
No, we ask for our daily bread and we dare to ask for our daily bread and we ask for daily bread with confidence because it's in the strength of our daily bread that we want to hallow the name of God and seek his kingdom and do his will and fulfill our calling in this world. You see, God has called us to live a life that revolves around him. Anything else is idolatry. Our lives must center on him and revolve around him. We are kingdom people. We are called to serve the king. And the Lord God knows that this kingdom life to which he has called us is not an easy life. As God's kingdom people called to serve him, we have many challenges. Kingdom life makes demands of us. It requires self-sacrifice and self-denial. There's a lot of opposition as we strive to hallow the name and seek the kingdom and do the will of the Father. Indeed, there are many frustrations, many obstacles, and there can be a lot of suffering, so much so that it's all quite overwhelming. But then the thing, of course, is that we don't have to do all of this in our own strength. We don't hallow the name of the Lord and seek his kingdom and do his will in our own human strength. We're not left to fight a good fight of the faith by our own spiritual resources. On the contrary, as we aspire to fulfill our calling in this world, as we strive to fight the good fight of the faith, we from the battlefield may call upon the king in heaven. And we may do so with the total confidence that he will supply us with everything we need to do the work and to fulfill the calling which he's laid upon us. But then the thing, of course, to keep in mind is the praying we do must indeed be related to God and the service of God in this world. In fact, if I may say it this way, and it may sound a bit shocking when you first think about it or hear it, but I think it's true. I think it's true that we're never allowed to pray ever for anything that isn't related to hallowing the name and seeking the kingdom and doing the will of God the Father. You see, you can't divide your prayer up into this dualism where first you have a number of things that pertain to God and God's glory and God's service and then you have a number of things that pertain to you and your life and your needs and your wants and your preferences, however legitimate. The simple fact is, biblically speaking, that we're never allowed to pray for just me. Never. Never ever are we allowed to pray for just me. We can say that because, of course, we're never ever allowed to live for one second for just me. We're not allowed to live part of the day for just ourselves. Not one hour out of 24, not one minute out of an hour, not one second out of a minute. Now the entirety of our life is to be consecrated to God so that everything is about hallowing his name, doing his will, seeking his kingdom, fulfilling the calling that he's laid upon us. And so if you are asking for things for yourself, for example, if you're asking for financial improvement, if you're asking for relational improvement in your life, if you're asking for healing of body, mind, or spirit, whatever it is that you're asking for can be legitimate only in as much as you are committed to living a God-centered life. And that with your improved financial situation and with your improved relationships, with your improved family, with your improved whatever, you don't want to just live for yourself, but you want to live for God. It's only then that you can pray with integrity, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done 
and expect God to answer. But when we do pray like that, when the Lord's Prayer is our norm and standard, when we are living a God-centered life, then that encouraging guarantee really is there. The Father in Heaven whom we are serving, the Father in Heaven whose name we are striving to hallow, the God whose kingdom we are seeking and whose will we are aspiring to fulfill, that God says to us, ask, it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now isn't that encouraging for us as we come to the afternoon of this Lord's Day and start thinking about tomorrow and what tomorrow holds in terms of school, family, work, society, all the responsibilities we have, our various callings. They are diverse. They are demanding. They are all-encompassing. And God is saying to you here in this beautiful, encouraging guarantee this afternoon, ask whatever you need for those things. It will be given to you. Don't doubt, because I, your God, Never lie, and I have given you this encouraging guarantee. We sing then that Christ teaches us to pray with confidence to our Heavenly Father by means of a story and an encouraging guarantee. And lastly, we see in verses 11 through 13 that he does this with a comforting comparison. Lord Jesus Christ here, people of God, works with the well-known fact that Parents generally care for their children. And that's not just true of Christians, that's true of all parents. And Jesus here in the parable singles out fathers. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that even in a fallen world, we can generally count on it that fathers really care about their children. They want the best for their children. And therefore, they don't give their children things which are dangerous or useless, but they strive to give their children things which are good. Now, it's true, of course, that fathers and mothers don't always give their children what they want. I heard a story, a funny story, about a young boy who had a reptile collection, for example. This boy had his whole bedroom full of cages and aquariums. Every reptile that he could lay his hands on, he found a home for it in his bedroom, snakes and lizards and turtles. The collection was growing The reptiles were having babies even. And one day, after watching a TV show, he decided that he would add some exotic snakes to his collection, and he set out to find ways and means of getting a cobra into his collection of reptiles. His father found out about it, and his father said to him, Son, this you will not receive. This we will not allow, because a cobra in the house is dangerous. It's not good for you. I won't allow you to have one. So no, fathers do not always give children what they want, what they desire, what they ask for. Similarly, God does not always give us exactly what we ask for in literal terms. Even when we ask humbly, even when we ask with a disposition to not be selfish, but to seek the Lord's name and his kingdom and his will. For example, someone who is ill, may sincerely ask to get better, not just because he selfishly wants to have a good life, but because with improved health he feels he can better serve the Lord. And yet God might not give exactly what that person asks, even if he's asked with the right motives. 
But there's one thing you, you can know for sure, and that's what Jesus is underscoring here in this passage. Just as a human father, even in a broken world, strives to provide the best for his children, so God always gives what is best. God always gives what is best. To drive this point home, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 13 mentions the best of all God's gifts, the greatest gift of covenant life. He says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's a very telling statement there of the Lord Jesus. He refers here to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the best of all the Father's gifts. It's through the Spirit of God that he enables us to hallow his name. It's through the Spirit of God that we can seek the kingdom. It's through the Spirit of God that we can do the will of the Father. It's through the Spirit of God that we can fulfill our office, our calling, our duties in life. It's through the Spirit of God that we receive comfort and joy and love and peace. It's through the Spirit of God that our lives can be fruitful for God. In fact, this may sound over like an overstatement, but it's not really. No matter what requests we bring to God, great or small, whatever request we bring, the answer to that request in some way is linked to the presence and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. You could say the Holy Spirit is the answer to all of your prayers. Because it's through the Spirit that we are able to live that radically God-centered life in all of life. And so God promises the best. God promises himself, personally, through the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, if even men who are fallen sinners, if even pagan dads who know nothing of God can generally be trusted to provide for their children's needs to the best of their ability, how much more can you, therefore, not trust your Father in heaven? What a comforting comparison this really is. You can go to God with all of your needs in your life of Christian service. God always hears you. God always hears you the first time. And in response to your prayer, God always gives you not second best, but the very best. Not just a little, but everything. He gives you himself. He gives you his grace. He gives you his spirit. And what's the result of God hearing your every prayer? Well, the result is that you can say, people of God, with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul could do all things. Paul could hallow the name. Paul could seek the kingdom. Paul could do the will of his father. Paul could fulfill all the obligations of his office. He could do that not because he was Paul and he was so strong, but he could do that because he was a man of prayer who took the promise of Jesus seriously in the gospel when Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So Paul kept asking and Paul kept seeking and Paul kept knocking and God kept pouring out his grace and spirit and the result of that was Paul saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can fulfill all the obligations of my apostolic ministry. And so as you set out on the work of a new week, with all the challenges of life, challenges of family, challenges of your job, challenges of finance, 
the challenges of living as Christians in an unchristian world, then remember this promise of the Lord Jesus Christ and persevere in asking, persevere in knocking, persevere in seeking. You see, Paul, Paul's life was not magically delivered from all his struggles when he prayed to God. In fact, Paul had a difficult life. Paul had a constant share in struggles and suffering. But no matter what his circumstances were, Paul prayed and Paul came to experience in a very deep and powerful way that God's grace given to him an answer to prayer was more than sufficient for all the challenges of his life. And so let us persevere in prayer. Let's pray with the confidence that we are always heard because we are always loved and we shall never lack any good thing which we need to hallow the name and seek the kingdom and do the will of our Father in heaven. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.